Father, we thank you, Lord, for another day that you blessed us with. Lord, we rejoice in this day. It's your day, Lord. Every day is your day, and we thank you that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, that we can honor you and glorify you, and that you've given us your word, Lord. Sixty-six books written by 40 different authors, Lord, three different languages, this word that you've preserved for us with prophecies and with truth from Genesis to Revelation. Lord, help us to hunger and thirst for your word and for righteousness. Help us, Lord, to desire it more, as Job says, than our daily bread. Help us to grow, Lord, in our love for you and one another. Help us to lift our eyes up to heaven, Lord, as this world is going to hell in a handbasket, Lord, and just so many different things going on in the world around us. We pray that you would be glorified, Lord, in this world, that many, many souls would come to know you, Lord, through things that appear dark, things that are um, just not in accordance with your word, Lord. May you somehow turn it for good. May you somehow be glorified through it, and may your son be honored and glorified in our lives, Lord. And so bless this message today. Encourage our hearts. Unify us in the faith. We love you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. title of today's teaching is Avoiding Confusion in a Confusing World. Avoiding confusion in a confusing world, and probably going to go a little bit of a different direction than you might think. It's the challenge for today's teaching is trying to apply the text that we're going to be looking at in our lives today. And you'll see what I'm talking about perhaps in a couple minutes. But a verse that I've been repeating in my own life and even at church here is Second Corinthians 11:3. Did a whole message on it, and this is what it says. But I am afraid lest, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I just love that the gospel is simple. The simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. And Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he's saying, I'm afraid that you're drifting, that the serpent has deceived you. The serpent, Satan, has tricked you just as he did with Eve in leading you astray from just the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And we live in this crazy internet age where deception and confusion and disinformation it's all just one click away just one click away it's right there a lie can travel around the world in a split second it can be on the other side of the world before i finish this sentence and the enemy is taking advantage of that he's crafty he creates deception and confusion and it looks so similar so close and it so resembles the truth that people don't even realize that they're being led astray. That's the very definition of deception. You think you're believing in the truth. You think it's in accordance with reality, and actually it's not. Satan doesn't come walking down the street with, uh, you know, a red suit on and a pitchfork, though you might see that on Halloween, uh, someone going door to door asking for candy, but that's not how Satan works. Second Corinthians 11, 14, and 15 states Satan disguises himself as an angel of light therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end shall be according to their deeds no he wants to look as closely related to Christ as possible he wants to look like an angel if he can and so that's how he comes across we know that as believers people in the world they don't understand that Recently, well, I say recently, it was a couple months ago now, I think, that I went fly fishing. A little group of us went, and 
of course I caught nothing on that trip it's a bummer I got to get out there again um, next season whenever that is once it's not as cold I don't know the rivers are probably frozen by now but I thought about just jumping in the water at one point because I must have cast a couple hundred times I don't know I wasn't keeping track maybe a thousand but I was like, I might do better with my hands, just jumping in the water and trying to grasp a fish, throw a rock at it, do something else. But fly fishing, what's what's the point of fly fishing? You get th this bait, you get these flies, and they're all, I was looking up pictures of them uh, online actually last night, and they have these long hairs on them and different colors, and they try to make them look so much like the real thing, right? To where these fish they they can't tell a fake fly and the bait from the real thing and i was actually reading about a theologian a bible commentator i like his commentary and they said this guy he lived in the 1800s and they say he was so odd that he would not go fishing with bait on a hook because he felt like it was deceiving the fish and he didn't want to deceive anything or anyone so his conscience was pricked i'm not going to go fishing with bait and deceive these poor little fish so I think he was taking that too far, but when you th when you look at the illustration or the analogy, you know many people are, are like the fish in our world today. They can't tell the difference. They can't d discern fake from reality, or a lie from the truth, or good from evil. But we have God's word. We have His truth. The more we study it, the more we compare and discern according to his word the things around us it all becomes clearer and clearer the truth reigns supreme so make no mistake about it the enemy has no reservations about trying to deceive us to trying to deceive those in the church trying to deceive those in the world that's what he does that's his job description ephesians 6 10 and 11 commands us be strong in the lord and in the power of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes is methodia, the methods of the devil, the craftiness, the cunning, the trickery, the deceit. He's trying to plot and plan and maneuver and think, what's your weakness? Your weakness might be different from someone else's weakness. Something that, that really tempts someone else might not tempt you. And so he's plotting and planning and, and he's having all these different methods and all this different craftiness that he takes part in to deceive the world. So we must be on guard. We must be in the word. We must be in prayer. We must be in fellowship. And we must examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. The more you know God's word, the more you're in it, the more you're meditating on it, the more you see the things in the world around you, and it doesn't phase you. You're not caught off guard by it. It doesn't trick you. It doesn't deceive you. You see it for what it truly is. So we've been out of the book of Colossians for quite a while now, and I want to get back into Colossians today. We want to finish out chapter 2, and so we're going to be looking at Colossians 2, the second half of the chapter, in just a minute. But the enemy was infiltrating the church in Colossae, um, not quite as much as in Galatia, if you remember the Galatian letter, Paul has some pretty strict words. He tells the Galatian church, man, that these false teachers that are coming in, he says, they're troubling you. They're troubling you and trying to make you get circumcised so that you can be saved and go back to the old covenant law. And he goes, I'm so, 
He's, he's, I'm summarizing what he said. I'm so angry that why don't they just go ahead and mutilate themselves? Why don't they go ahead and cut themselves off? They're telling you to cut off your foreskin to be saved. Why don't they just cut off the whole member? Paul has some strong language for the false teachers that are infiltrating the church. And so these teachers also were infiltrating the church at Colossae. And they were clever and they were cunning and they were, they were just twisting the truth a little bit. They weren't quite ramping it up as much as in Galatia. It doesn't appear as we're going to go ahead and read this. But they were still twisting things enough to get the Colossian church to doubt just a little bit or to drift just a little bit from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Getting them to think something to this effect. Is faith in Jesus enough? Is, is that enough, just putting your faith and trust in Jesus? That, no, 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 that's too simple. That's too easy. It needs to be more nuanced. There needs to be more mystery. There, there's a secret knowledge. And guess who has that? The teachers would come in and say, we have this secret knowledge. See, you're missing something. It, it, it just can't be that easy that you just put your faith and trust in Jesus and you're saved. No, it, it must be more than that, a special knowledge. So that's why we say that Gnosticism, this, this gnosis or this knowledge, special knowledge was infiltrating these churches and did for the first several hundred years of church history. We're looking at Colossians 2, 16 through 23 today. Colossians 2, 16 to 23. So let's go ahead and read this text. It says, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. These man-made religions, these traditions of man, these commandments of men, they have no value in the real fight that we're in as Christians. The fight of faith, the fight against the flesh, the spirit which is at war with the flesh. They're bringing in these, these traditions and these old covenant laws and decrees. And Paul says they're of no value. They have no value in your walk with Christ, in keeping him supreme and in growing with him. And so Paul begins this portion, this text that we're looking at today with the word therefore. Therefore, he says, He's connecting what he's previously said in the first chapter and a half. And he's said a lot in the first chapter and a half. He's said a lot about Jesus Christ, all these in him statements, in him, you are this and that. And so 
he makes it really difficult to summarize in maybe a sentence or two, but I'm going to try. I want to try to summarize in a sentence, in one sentence. It's a, it's a long one. All that he stated about Christ leading up to this point in verse 16. And he says in chapter 1, Christ is king. Christ is redeemer. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is head over all things. Through Christ, all things were created, and all things were created for him. Christ is eternal. Christ holds all things together. Christ is the head of the church. Christ conquered death. Christ has first place in everything. All the fullness dwells in Christ. All things have been reconciled to Christ through the blood of his cross. Christ is the mystery hidden from past generations, but has now been manifested to the saints. Christ is the hope of glory. Christ makes every person who believes in him complete. Christ contains all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is Lord. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. Christ was buried and Christ was raised from the dead, and through Christ all our sins are forgiven. Christ canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, nailing it to the cross. Christ triumphed over and made a public display and disarmed the rulers and the authorities. So who else are you going to put your faith in? Who else are you going to put your trust in? Paul is belaboring the point that Jesus Christ is everything. He's the preeminent one. He's the chief cornerstone. If you have Christ, you have everything. You're complete in him. So then he says, therefore, therefore, in light of all of this, Colossians, don't let anyone act as your judge. Verse 16, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Many commentators believe he's talking about the dietary laws here when he says food and drink, the clean and the unclean animals, certain things that had to do with God's covenant with Moses. And Paul's saying you're not bound by that anymore. You're free in Christ. So don't let anyone judge you according to these things. Mark seven nineteen, Jesus declared all foods clean. So perhaps people are coming in to the church, would be today, hey, you're eating a ham sandwich, you're in trouble. I don't know. I don't know if you're really saved, you're eating ham. Or they would be saying things to that effect. Oh, it's a Sabbath day? You're, oh, you, you made food in the morning? Oh, you went to work? Oh, now oh, I don't know if you're saved. And they, they were judging them for things that Paul says you are not bound uh, under anymore. These things were shadows. These are previews. These are types. These are things pointing to something else, something better, something greater, something more significant, namely Christ. Would you rather have monopoly money or real money? Don't say monopoly money. Would you rather have a Hot Wheels car or a real car? Would you rather have a mannequin for a friend or a spouse or a real person? Silly illustrations. Don't say mannequin if either. Look online. There's actually people that have married mannequins. It's a bizarre world we're living in. So Paul's basically saying, look, do you want to go back to Egypt? Do you want to be enslaved all over again? Do you want to be free in the promised land? Which one do you want? So 
we need to remember it's all through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Galatians 3, 24 and 25, Paul says, Therefore the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. The law is a good thing if used properly. The law had a time and a place with the Jewish people of God in the Old Covenant. And Paul says that was a tutor. It was to show us our sin. It was like a mirror to show us our inadequacy before God. It was a constant reminder that we don't add up, that we can't keep all his laws and commandments. And it was meant to show the Jewish people, it's meant to show us when we look at the law that we don't meet the standard. We're, we can never meet perfection and so they had to offer the bulls and goats and all these animals year after year after year it was a constant reminder that their sin was never cleansed it was pointing to something else it was pointing to the sacrifice of Christ so why do we want to go back to that so in this passage that we're looking at Paul says true circumcision is a changed heart and he mentioned that earlier in chapter 2, true circumcision is not an outward change, but an inward change. True food is feeding on Christ. True drink is feeding or drinking from Christ. The true festival is feasting on Christ. The true Sabbath is every day in Christ because Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. They're all types, symbols, shadows of that which is greater, Jesus Christ, and being united to him. Listen to Hebrews 10.1 says for the law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near and then he says in verse 10 the writer to the hebrews hebrews 10:10 10, 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of jesus christ once for all cleansed forgiven justified once for all through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the same heresy presented in the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians, and it's mentioned in several of the New Testament letters, and that is that you must keep some part of the old covenant law to be right with God. Maybe it's circumcision, maybe it's the dietary laws, maybe it's a new moon, maybe it's a Sabbath, whatever it may be, if you're adding any, any of those things to Christ and salvation through him alone, you're in danger of damnation. And those are the words that Paul uses in the book of Galatians. If we or an angel preach another gospel than that which we preached, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it again. Galatians 5, 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. If you're trying to work your way to God, trying to keep all the laws, you've fallen back into enslavement and you're now severed from Christ. It's very serious stuff. Paul's not like, oh, you want to get circumcised and you want to try to justify yourself. I mean, go, go at it. That's okay. You're still saved. Many teachers today might say things like that no Paul realizes that they're in danger of hell unless they turn to Christ and Christ alone very serious stuff Galatians 3 1 who has bewitched you you foolish Galatians before whose eyes Jesus Christ 
was publicly portrayed as crucified. So the Galatians were buying this teaching. The Colossians, on the other hand, seemed to be dabbling with it. It wasn't quite as strong. We don't see this strong language here in this passage today. It seems like it was just maybe infiltrating or not to the same extent, but so Paul is giving these these warnings. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them defraud you of your prize. Now here's where we look at this today is what's the application for us? You know, most of you probably didn't wake up, get out of bed, think about circumcision this morning. That's probably not something you were thinking about. I, I, I'm, I'm just debating circumcision and whether I need to get that done to be saved. Um, I'm really struggling with the dietary food laws. Um, man, these new moons, these festivals, I'm just, maybe talk to your spouse, honey, I'm struggling with this, you know. I don't know if I'm really saved, so I'm going to keep the new moon. So, you know, we're living in a different context. We're living, most of us, I would say, because I know you guys, most of you, these aren't things that we're necessarily wrestling with today, like the Colossian church was. This was a big deal for them. Paul made sure that he addressed this in the church so that they didn't drift into this. For us, it's, man, I, I might, I'm struggling with this sin. This temptation is really hammering me. Oh, man, I'm, I'm struggling maybe in my relationship, and I'm, I'm trying to work through this, or I want to work on my prayer life, or I want, maybe it's more on that level. I, I don't want to be so anxious in this world. I'm seeing what's going on in Israel and with Hamas, and I'm hearing about a Maine shooter, the shooter in Maine, and every time I turn on the news, there's just trouble all around, and what's going to happen to me and my family and my bank account? Those are the things that are maybe at the forefront of a lot of people's lives today. Not food and drink and a festival, a new moon, a Sabbath day, and wondering if we're saved because of these things. So that's the challenge as I'm working through the scripture. How, how do we apply this to our lives today? Now look back at verses 16 and 18 briefly here, where the Apostle Paul, he exhorts them in verse 16, let no one act as your judge. And then he says in verse 18, let no one defraud you. I want to just spend a minute or two on this. This word defraud, if you have a King James, it's beguile. Let no one beguile you of your prize. If you have a new King James, it says, let no one cheat you. NIV, disqualify you. As I was reading some commentators, one commentator said, I think it was verse 18 and 19, he says, these are the two of the most puzzling texts in the New Testament. And I think it has to do with the Greek and the way that the Greek was comprised and stated and the commentators are trying to work it out into the English. And we, we don't quite see it in the English, but some of these terms aren't used a ton in the New Testament. Elementary principles in verse 20 and the, trying to translate the word um, defraud and w worshiping angels. I mean, who who's worshiping angels? Who... Paul's like, they're worshiping angels and they're taking their stand on these visions and somehow these Colossians are being led astray by that, but the commentators are looking at that and going, how are they led astray by people worshiping angels? H how is that appetizing, so to speak, to them? And so a lot of the commentators that I was reading were going back and forth on these texts, trying to piece them together as to what was really going on. Maybe they were reverencing angels. And the, the word in the NASB, it says self-abasement. It means humility. They, they were coming across with this form of humility and that some commentators were stating, perhaps they were saying, look, we, we're not going to be 
prideful and go straight to God and straight to the throne of Christ, we're going we're gonna to go through the angels. And so it was coming across as spiritual and humble that they were maybe tapping into the spiritual realm and seeking angels. And so this is what was luring the Colossians into it, that it was this form of religiosity and spiritualness that was really capturing them. But when we look at this word defraud, it actually, it speaks of an umpire in the original language. It means don't let anyone act as your umpire. It was a word originally used for unfair judgment in the stadium games, which the victor was robbed of his prize. So he's saying, don't let anyone rob you of your prize. And as I was studying this and looking into this, I thought of, you know, there's a, there's a good amount of sports fans here. And I'm sure you can think of a time or two when maybe a team was defrauded of the prize where a bad call by the umpire or the referee cost a team the game. Maybe it cost them a World Series or they would have, man, they probably would have gone on to win the Super Bowl or the World Series or the Stanley Cup or, or the World Cup, but man, this ref just blew the call. This umpire just blew the call. And as I'm saying that, you, I'm sure you guys are thinking of a specific, tell me after actually, because I'm curious what you guys are thinking about. But I, there's a lot of articles online when you look this up. What, what was the worst call of all time? If you just type that in, article after article. It was this one. It was the, the Tom Brady, this thing over here. And the Hail Mary pass, I think it was the Seattle Seahawks. And that was the worst call ever. And I was reading up and kind of getting distracted as I was reading these different articles on, on bad calls that affected the outcome of the game. And one that I stumbled across was the 1988 Olympics. Now, I was two years old, so I didn't watch it then. Maybe I was watching it. I don't know. But I don't remember it. It was in South Korea, and there was this boxing match between Roy Jones Jr. and Park Soo Hin, I believe was his name. And I was watching some replay of this fight, and Roy Jones Jr. was just knocking him left and right. He connected like three times as many punches, and surely Roy Jones Jr. was the victor, and the judges gave it to the other guy because he was South Korean. It was in South Korea, and the judges were scared. Perhaps something was going to happen to them if they gave it to Roy Jones Jr. Well, after two of those judges were banned for life from whatever you call it, judging. They're not referees or umpires, but from judging any boxing the rest of their lives. It was an obvious, obviously it was a bad call. They should have given it to Roy Jones Jr. But uh, does he have any say after that? He couldn't petition it. He, they couldn't change their mind. Some sports today have instant replay or let's go back to the booth and change the call. That didn't exist in the history of sports. Once the call was made, the call stood and that was that. So he got the silver medal, not the gold medal. But he went on to fight for 33 years. He actually just fought again recently, several months ago. Interesting. But that's essentially what Paul is telling these Colossian Christians. Don't let anyone defraud you. See, players, as I mentioned, once the call is made, it's done. Paul's saying, they're making calls against you. They're judging you. Don't let it stand. It doesn't stand. It doesn't matter. What truly matters is, is what Christ thinks about you. His judgment is what matters. So hold fast to him. 
Be secure in him. You're safe and you're saved, so don't be bothered. Don't let these false teachers defraud you of your prize. Don't let them disqualify you of your prize. I once had a Christian friend, Christian brother, newer in the Lord, and we were, I think, eating, yeah, we were eating lunch one day, and he was just really distraught, and he, his countenance was down, and I said, what's going on? And he said, I met with a, an older friend that I've had, and we reconnected, I think, online, and he said, he says he's a Christian, and so I went to his church, and he was teaching, and everything went well, and then after, he took me into this room with these other guys, and they started to question me. And they started to question me about my baptism and was it a legitimate baptism and do I speak in tongues? And so they're saying, we don't know if that was a legitimate baptism. And since you're not speaking in tongues, you should question your salvation. And so here he was and they had some, they, they, they picked a verse over here and picked a verse over here. And before he knew it, am, am I saved? I, do I need to speak in tongues? Do I need to go be baptized again? Do, does it have to be a certain pastor? Does he, does he have to be ordinated? Does he have to show me his ordination slip for it to be official before the throne of heaven uh, so that, that I can be saved? I mean, w- what is it? And so perhaps it's not the same exact ploy that Satan used here with these New Testament churches, but today it takes on a different form. Do you speak in tongues? Because if you really have the Holy Spirit, see, if you look in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and the apostles, they spoke in tongues. And when you see people baptized in the book of Acts, they speak in tongues. And so if you really have the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak in tongues too. And so you can start building a case when you twist the Bible. You can start building a case for almost anything. Take a verse over here. Take a verse over here. I mean, what did Satan do with Jesus when he was tempting him? Matthew chapter 4. He quoted scripture to Jesus. Quotes it out of context, quotes half a verse, quotes something here. If you don't know God's word, if you're not in it, if you're not reading it cover to cover, you're going to miss out on things and Satan's going to be able to deceive you. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Satan might be trying schemes that are a little different with us today but it's the same repackaged lies that he's feeding the church don't let him rob you of your prize if you have jesus you have everything if you're trusting in jesus you're justified you're saved you're forgiven cling to that it was matthew henry who once said quote when men let go their hold of christ they catch at what will stand them in no stead When you let go of Christ, you're going to grab a hold of things of this world that are sinking sand. They might feel good in the moment, might feel like it's bringing some security, might give give you some sort of knowledge or self-worth, but in the end, it's sifting sand. And what we see here, worshiping angels, Paul says they're puffed up, swelled up with pride. They have the appearance of humility, but they're actually prideful. The old covenant law, and then he gets into the elementary principles of this world when you lose your fascination with christ you'll be fascinated by anything fleshly idols will grab a hold of you and they will never satisfy and i think that's the application for us today being satisfied with jesus christ there's so many dis- distractions in our world 
so many things at the click of a button. When you're satisfied with Christ, you're able to rejoice in the things of this world. You're able to enjoy them in their proper context, and they don't grab a hold of your heart. So outward superficial religiosity brings a momentary sense of spirituality and self-righteousness that puffs up, but it stifles true spiritual growth and brings it to nothing. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 19. And holding fast to the head from which the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from gr- which is from God. It's like disconnecting your head if you're going to go after these things, Paul says. They're going to stifle your growth. Colossians 3, 4 says, Christ is our life. When he's revealed, you will also be revealed with him in glory. Three times in the book of Colossians, Paul uses this illustration of the head and the body. Three times he says, Christ is the head. Christ is the head of the body. I was looking up on Google. What's the most important part of the body? The brain. Princeton Brain and Spine.com says the brain is arguably the most important organ in the human body. It controls and coordinates actions and reactions, allows us to think and feel, and enables us to have memories and feelings, all things that make us human. Another article says, your brain is you. Everything else is just plumbing and scaffolding. (laughs) Interesting. You are your brain. Without your head, you're nothing. And Paul is saying, look, Jesus is the head. The more I read through Colossians and study it, it's just, and I think I've said this before, he's just using different ways to show them Jesus is everything. Different illustrations, different ways of communicating the same thing. And for us, it's like, okay, it's so, I'm hearing the same thing. It's simple. Jesus is everything. Trust in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Okay, go home. Shut the book. That's it. But you'd be surprised as to how many people don't apply this in their lives. How many people are filling churches today and they're not holding fast to Christ. They haven't had an inward transformation that leads to an outward change of life. They're going through the motions. They're saying their Hail Marys and their their rosaries and they're standing up and sitting down and checking off a box and then they're going home and living the same way they were before they came in to church. It's so important that we realize that Jesus Christ is everything. It was Alexander McLaren who stated, quote, there is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us. And that is the power of the indwelling Christ. It's a pretty powerful quote. There's an animal inside of us, the flesh, it's raging. What's the only thing that will curb that appetite? Jesus Christ indwelling in us, being united to him. You can put on these outward band-aids. You can do this or that, man-made religion. I worked at a rescue mission for several years. I saw it. And as I was leaving, that's what they were trying to do. They were fighting the battle way up here, not at the root, not at the source. Just kind of push the scripture aside push Jesus Christ aside and it was just like the false teachers in Galatia and the Hebrews and here in Colossae. Just move it over just a little bit. Let's just, let's start talking about angels now. Let's just start talking about visions. 
Just bring in a couple new moon festivals. No big deal. Before you know it, Christ is over here and everything else is taking center stage. It's a slow fade. So we have to ask the question, if we're not growing in the Lord, according to verse 19, are we truly holding fast to Christ? If you're not growing in him, are you truly holding fast to him? It's a good question to ask. And this was Paul's concern for this church. Teachers are coming in. They're humble. They're religious. They're insightful. They seemed disciplined and orderly. They had reverence for spiritual things. And Paul's saying that it's a smokescreen. It's a smokescreen blurring the reality of the supremacy of Christ. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. Read these and make a few more comments here. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. I was reading articles about treatment of the body, how in even certain sects within the Catholic Church today and other countries, these men, they still flagellate themselves. I was reading an article about a man who wanted to work his way up in the Catholic order and he had been starving himself or sleeping on the ground without a pillow and doing all these things to just, you know, I'm, I'm showing that I'm like Christ because Christ was crucified, so I got to endure some pain to be like him. And so the last order, the last thing that he needed to do, the next step to become the leader was to flagellate himself, to hit himself in the back with razor blades. And if he did this for 20 minutes straight and allowed the blood to go down and all over the floor, then he'd be most like Christ, and then he could lead the people. This still goes on around the world today people that are putting themselves, as Paul is saying here, under severe treatment of the body to where these newer Colossian believers are going, wow, they're sold out. Look what they're doing for Jesus. Wow, we're just sitting over here saying we have faith. We're just praying and reading our Bible, but they've taken it to another level. They're sleeping on rocks. They're walking on hot coals. I mean, they're doing anything for Jesus. Let's go. Let's go for it. And Paul's like, essentially what Paul's saying is that's foolish. It's stupidity, and it has no value against fleshly indulgence. That's not going to help you in your fight against lust, in your fight against anxiety and fear and worry and greed and pride and so on and so forth. That doesn't help. It might look good. It might, it might look like they're sold out, but that doesn't help with those things, with the fleshly fight that wages war within. And as McLaren said, it's only the indwelling Christ that's going to curb the appetite of the flesh. It's having more of Jesus. It's being satisfied with Jesus. It's being filled with Jesus. So when you are tempted to lust, when you're tempted to anxiety, you remind yourself, no, Jesus is more satisfying. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I'm going to have more joy being in him. My cup overflows in him. I don't need that. I don't need to go after greed. I don't need to go after lust. I don't need to go after these things because I'm so satisfied in him. I'm not anxious. I'm not worried because I'm secure in him. He loves me. His thoughts for me are like the hairs on my head. I'm secure in him. 
No weapon formed against me will prosper. By his power, by his strength, I am like on the solid rock. I'm secure. I'm good. The closer you get to Christ, the more you submit to him, the more sin dissipates in your life, the more the flesh is crucified. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Christ starts living your life for you because you're united in his death, you're united in his burial, you're united in his resurrection, and as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, we're seated in heavenly places with him. We're looking forward to the kingdom. So the things of this world, let them be as they may. We're secure and satisfied in him. That's Paul's heart for the Colossian church. That's God's heart for us today. But there's always the Pharisee in every generation. Mark 7, 6 through 8. Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. There's a lot of traditions in this world. When people come knocking on my door, the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon friends, I'm, I tell them, I have faith in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm not saved by works. I'm saved because of what Christ does or what he did and what he continues to do for us. I'm saved in him. What do you have to offer me? Well, we can give you a baptism and we can put you on our church roll and they don't typically say this, but we have some really great buildings and you can come. I, I don't need that. I've got Jesus Christ. I've got everything. I'm saved. I'm secure in him. You don't have anything to offer me. That's where we need to be. So these religious leaders were outwardly clean, the Pharisees and perhaps these teachers that were infiltrating the Colossian church and these other churches. And Jesus said, look, they wash their hands meticulously before they eat and they wash the pots and the pans and everything. And then Jesus tells them, you strain out the gnat and you swallow a camel. Man, you're so meticulous in the traditions of men, but when it comes to the commandments of God and to how to actually get right with him, you're totally off base. You've missed the mark completely and you're in danger of hellfire. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And then he goes on to say, abide in me. And those are the words for us today. If you're in Christ, if you have his word, if he abides in you, you're clean, you're forgiven, you're justified. Now abide in him. Grow in him. Learn more about him. Jesus even said to the religious leaders, you're like whitewashed tombs, right? On the outside, you appear clean. Inside, you're like dead men's bones. So how many people are filling churches today just like that? Outwardly clean. It's easy to fit in. Big mega churches. You walk in, you hear a message, you walk out and go live like the rest of the world. How are Christians to have their witness in this world if that's the way they're living? So for us, the application is, let's be more like Christ. Let's make it our ambition to know his word, 
to study his word, to be in fellowship, to grow in him. Let me give you three final verses in closing here. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. One of my favorites, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden or my load is light. You want rest for your soul? Go to Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Meditate on him. Study him. And finally, John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's the abundant life. That's the fulfilled life. That's the satisfied life. Living for Christ. Loving Christ. Following Christ. Learning from Christ. Trusting Christ. Finding our security in Christ. He's the good shepherd. He laid down his life for the sheep. Fix your eyes on him. The confusion will diminish. The truth will become clearer and clearer.